Hello and welcome to Music of the River City. This is your host, Chris Gooden. If you're a music fan, particularly if you're a fan of blues or classic rock, then you already know about Robert Johnson. His compilation album, King of the Delta Blues Singers, was released in 1961, over two decades after his death, and was incredibly influential on British blues rockers like Eric Clapton and Keith Richards. Clapton, in particular, has said that listening to the album was such an intensely emotional experience for him that he could only listen in short bursts without being overwhelmed. For all his influence, though, there's a lot we don't know about Robert Johnson. His life and death are shrouded in mystery. Did he really go down to the crossroads at midnight and sell his soul to the devil to learn to play the guitar? Or was he just a plain old gifted musician who practiced a lot? Did he really die after being poisoned by a jealous husband? Or was it just appendicitis? In fact, we really don't even know that much about his music. For a man who undoubtedly performed thousands of hours of music in his short life, we only have 29 songs to evaluate who he was as a musician. Was he really, as Eric Clapton said, the most important blues singer that ever lived? My guest on the show today is going to help us sort out all these questions. Author, musician, and Grammy Award winner Elijah Wald is one of the world's leading experts in blues history and Robert Johnson. In Escaping the Delta, he writes about not only Robert Johnson, but also the context of the musical world in which Robert Johnson lived and worked. I read Escaping the Delta a few years ago and really, really enjoyed it. So I was so psyched to be able to chat with Elijah Wald for a few minutes about music, blues, and Robert Johnson. We'll get to my interview with Elijah Wald in just a second, but first, a quick update. Devoted Music of the River City listeners will recall that I am in the midst of an ongoing struggle with Dan Edney, owner of Vicksburg's very own record store, Mighty River Records. Back in April, we sat down and had an album draft, taking turns picking our favorite albums. You can go and check out our selections at Mighty River Records at the Levy Street Marketplace in downtown Vicksburg. And you can place your votes in this competition by buying a record from the bin with the Music of the River City logo. Music of the River City is currently holding a slim, two-record lead. So help out your favorite podcaster, head down to Mighty River Records, and buy an album from the picks in my bin. As an aside... I've made no effort to hide my borderline unhealthy obsession with the Stardust album by Willie Nelson. So, of course, it was one of my top picks. Although the album can be a little tough to find, Mighty River Records currently has a vintage copy in stock. So get down there and get it before it's gone. And one more thing. If you enjoyed today's episode about Robert Johnson, you can get his King of the Delta Blues Singers album from Dr. Edney's Ben of favorite picks at Mighty River Records. Next week, you'll get to hear all of mine and Dr. Edney's picks. Right now, though, it's on to a fun and informative interview with today's guest, Elijah Wall. Hello, and welcome to Music of the River City. My guest today author, musician, and Grammy winner, Elijah Wald. Elijah, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I want to just kind of start the conversation. Um, let's say I have a time machine and I go back in time and I and drive up to the Delta, well, I guess, or maybe walk up to the Delta, and I track Robert Johnson down and I ask him, what kind of music do you play? What does he say? What do you want to hear? <laughs> Right. Okay. So he wouldn't say, oh, I'm a blues man. No, absolutely not. Uh, in fact, literally what he would typically say, as, as I understand from people who knew him, is, what's your pleasure? Okay. That was, yeah. that was apparently his phrase. So the book, Escaping the Delta, one of the things that you spend a lot of time in the book is sort of setting the stage for the world that Robert Johnson lived in. And I found it really interesting that the, this whole concept of genre that we talk about a lot really wasn't as, as firmly and neatly divided up when Robert Johnson was playing music. Is that right? 
Oh, yeah. To a great extent, it didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, as long as most music was live music, there was really no sense of genre. As long as most music was live music, musicians' jobs, by and large, was play what the people in the room want to hear. And what the people in the room wanted to hear was, you know, the whole range of people in the room. I mean, first of all, nobody was expected to play their own music. That simply didn't exist as a concept. Everybody, as a live musician, your job was to play music. (laughs) You know, and by and large, this is one of the problems of trying to understand that world based on records. Because if someone like Robert Johnson or anybody was playing, they were playing for a room full of people who wanted to hear their favorite songs and their favorite kind of music. And then when that same musician went into a recording studio, they were being asked to produce new songs that the producers could publish because publishing was where the money was. So that not only do the records not represent what people play live, to a large extent, the records represent the opposite mm-hmm. of what people played live. Interesting. I mean, they give a sense of what people could do. My guess is that Robert Johnson live would have played a lot of the same guitar arrangements and sung the current P.D. Wheatstore, Leroy Carr hits mm-hmm. over the same guitar arrangements we know. But then when he went into a studio, he was being asked to write his own lyrics to those arrangements. And he did it brilliantly. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. Right. But that right. was not what most people were looking for. Right. So if I if I were, like I said, in my time machine and I and I went to hear him play at a juke joint and I was expecting to hear, you know, 3220 or, you know, Crossroads Blues, I would have been kind of disappointed because that's not would have been in wouldn't have been in his set list. Probably it could have been in his set list. But first of all, we have to step back a moment. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be in a juke joint. You're a white guy. <laughs> yeah, sure. If you were seeing Robert Johnson you would be seeing him playing at one of your spaces. You would be seeing him playing at a white picnic or in a white cafe. And he would be playing the music that the white people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. And some of the white people would have wanted to hear blues and he would have played blues for them. Mm -hmm. And some of them would have wanted to hear country music and some of them would have wanted to hear the latest pop tunes. Mm -hmm. And that was what he did. And I mean, one of the big things that people misunderstand is that segregation did not mean that black musicians played for black people. Black musicians played for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a wonderful interview with Robert Jr. Lockwood, who was mm-hmm. one of who actually was sort of a, a protege of Robert Johnson's. Mm-hmm. And I heard an interview with him where somebody asked, so was it strange when the blues revival happened and suddenly you were playing for all these audiences of white people. And he said, who do you think we played for in Mississippi? (laughs) Yeah. They were the ones who had the money. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's the first thing that I, in a sense that I tried to keep in mind what I was writing and that I would underline Mm -hmm. is, you know, race is a big part of the story and our race is as much a part of the story as his race. Not only in terms of what people played and what their opportunities were, but also in terms particularly of what got recorded. I mean, there were lots of black fiddlers in Mississippi playing square dances. Mm -hmm. And they were playing square dances for both white people and black people. Mm -hmm. But there was this idea that that kind of music was white music, which may mean that the black fiddlers played that more often for white people than when they played for black people, but Mm -hmm. which meant that when people wanted to record that kind of music, they didn't record black fiddlers. So, I mean, one of the funny examples in Mississippi, in fact, is the couple named Narmer and Smith, Mm -hmm. who were fiddle and guitar duo, white, white players. 
and they were recorded as quote hillbilly musician and when someone the guy who recorded them said you know is there anyone else we should record and one of them said oh yeah there's there's a guy who sometimes plays for me Norma, who was the fiddler there's a guy who sometimes plays guitar for me when smith isn't here that was mississippi john hurt (laughs) and so they went and recorded mississippi john hurt because he sometimes played white dances backing a white fiddler Hmm. But of course, we don't have that in our recordings of Mississippi John Hurt. So a lot of what was happening, you know, the racial story is much more complicated mm-hmm. than the white people were in one place and the black people were in another place. They right. were all over each other, but the records then get divided. Right. So I want to take a quick digression because you mentioned Mississippi John Hurt. So, uh, you know, I, I've seen a few of your videos of you playing on YouTube and you do, I mean, you do the, his style really well. Is that something that, you know, his style of playing that you have always gravitated towards or what, what made you want to try to emulate his uh, style in particular? Um, there are two answers to that. Okay. First of all, I love it. Mm-hmm. Second of all, it's a style that is much more accessible to a white singer mm-hmm. than the Robert Johnson style. Okay. Um, I mean, there's a light, there's a lightness. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of that kind of really deep black blues tonality in the voice, in the mm-hmm. singing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can do a Mississippi John Hurt song my way in my own voice. Mm-hmm. And it sounds perfectly reasonable. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I try to sing, you know, John Lee Hooker, sounding like a white guy from Boston, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could see your point on that. Okay, well, so I, I want to ask to circle back around to uh, to Robert Johnson, and and you were talking about the context in the world that he lived in, and uh, the, uh, one of the other things you talked about in. Uh, the book uh, quite a lot is sort of the the reality of uh, a lot of the blues artists and their level of musical sophistication versus the mythology that was sort of created afterwards. And I, I remember one of the examples you used was Big Bill Brunzi. Um, sure. Right. You want to talk about that one? Well, Big Bill Brunzi said, actually, he's interesting on all sorts of levels. I mean, people, because Big Bill Brunzi, when he appeared on the white blues scene, Mm -hmm. which was essentially the moment that the white blues scene up north was invented. It was a Mm -hmm. concert called From Spirituals to Swing Mm -hmm. in New York City in 1938. And the idea was to show the roots of swing music. And they had Benny Goodman and Count Basie. And then they wanted to show the roots of that. Mm-hmm. And so they brought in Big Bill Brunsey to show that old kind of music that people played on farms in Mississippi. And they presented him actually as a sharecropper from Arkansas with this introduction about how he had bought his first pair of store-bought shoes. Right. Come on up from Arkansas and his farm. Mm-hmm. to sing those old Arkansas blues. And the crazy thing about that is Big Bill Brunsey did grow up in Arkansas and he was from a farm, but down in Arkansas and Mississippi, he had been a fiddle player mm-hmm. and had played fiddle at dances. And then he'd moved up to Chicago to do factory work. And he started playing guitar in Chicago and he became a major recording star and recorded well over a hundred records, both his own and records he produced and backed other people on and with full saxophone sections. <laughs> All of that before he gets introduced to New York <laughs> listeners as a sharecropper from Arkansas who's just bought his first pair of shoes to come and play for them. And that kind of becomes the way blues has been marketed ever since. Mm-hmm as the real thing is somebody who you know is a farmer from the mississippi delta Mm -hmm. who who has never played professionally and maybe if you're lucky has even killed a couple of people and spent some time in jail right let's talk about 
B.B. King for a second, too, because, you know, if, if you ask somebody to name a blues musician that they know, B.B. King, it's going to be B.B. King. Right. And so I always sort of had this impression before I really started getting into you know the history and stuff like that, that B.B. King was this guy that had always been a legend. Right. I mean, he was always you know, the most popular, you know, blues guy or whatever. But in reading his autobiography, one of the things that really stuck out to me was that he spent, the, you know, these decades sort of of his career where, you know, it, it, he said that he really felt trapped because he was too old fashioned for black audiences at that time in the in the 60s and early 70s. And he wasn't old fashioned enough or he wasn't rootsy and authentic enough for white audiences. Yeah, it's interesting because B.B. King's a perfect example for that, because, you know, someone like Muddy Waters or Howling Wolf, that was even more true of. I mean, Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf, really, their careers were completely wiped out by 1960. And if the white kids hadn't come along, they would have had nothing. B.B. actually still had a black audience. Mm -hmm. It was just an aging black audience. Right. But I mean, B.B. King in the early to mid 60s, he was playing good sized halls still. Yeah. But everybody in the room was black and the white young white people who were discovering Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf thought that B.B. King with his big band and his horn section sounded too slick, too big mm -hmm. band, too soul. Right. And at the same time, as you say, um, you know, he wasn't. Perfect example, Bobby Blue Bland mm -hmm. was actually doing better by 63, 64 <laughs> right. with black audiences, um, though they're very similar singers. But Bobby Blue Bland didn't play guitar. And that gave him the freedom to move into more of what we might think of as a soul sound. Mm -hmm. um, Little Milton is another one who played guitar right. brilliantly, but didn't play guitar on his records. In that period, he moved into more of a soul sound, whereas B.B. always kept the guitar front and center and the guitar tied him to that older style. On the other hand, the guitar is what the white fans jumped on because, you know, Eric Clapton on down, everybody said B.B. was the greatest on earth, which he was. B.B. also had a guitar style that was perfectly set to cross that boundary because his hero was Django Reinhardt, the French right. guitarist. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, B.B. was perfectly positioned to be the person he became. But there's actually there's a sort of tragic story. Bobby Rush, I, mm -hmm. I assume you know that name. Yes. Yeah. Bobby Rush has finally written a memoir. It's coming out in another couple of months. It's wonderful. It's mm -hmm. called I Ain't Studdin' Ya. Yeah. And uh, I was just reading an advanced copy. Okay. And he tells this very sort of moving and sad story because, you know, B.B. King used to play every year. He'd do a, a birthday homecoming concert in Indianola and right toward the end of his life. He calls Bobby Rush up and says, could you come down and co-star with me on my birthday show in Indianola? And Rush says, you know, actually, I've already got something booked that day. And B.B. King said, please, could you try to break it? Could you try to come down? I'd like to see some of my people there. Because B.B., when he did those shows, all the white folks showed up mm -hmm. and the black people in Indianola didn't really come out. And he wanted Bobby Rush there because Bobby Rush had been playing that circuit mm -hmm. all that time. And black audiences would show up for Bobby Rush and there and B.B. could, in fact, come home and be looking at faces of his home folk. Right. Yeah, that is sad. Yeah, Bobby, by the way, so just this last week, there was a big ceremony here at Vicksburg where the mayor gave Bobby Rush the key to the city, you know, just for a life, lifetime achievement, but it kind of tied into the book coming out and that kind of thing. So he definitely has a following here in Vicksburg. 
tying it back to B.B. King that, that you talked about in the book, but this is also, you know, in B.B.'s autobiography, he said it just straight out. Uh, he had a little section where he talked about Robert Johnson, and he said, you know, pe- for some reason, people always say that Robert Johnson was this influence on me, and he wasn't. You know, I knew who he was. I knew his music, but T-Bone was my guy that I really tried to emulate. Sure. Talk a little bit about this mythology about Robert Johnson and his his place in in blues history then versus the way it's viewed now. Sure. Well, I mean, his place in blues history then was nobody had heard of him outside of his neighborhood. Right. Um, I mean, it's really not more much more complicated than that. Uh, in terms of now, I think the way to think about it is if you think about when people talk about roots. Um, what roots really are, roots aren't there before plants. They're mm-hmm. the part of the plant that's growing down. Mm-hmm. While the rest of the plant is growing up. Mm-hmm. And we get to Robert Johnson as the roots of the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people start with the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and they say, so where did you come from? And they say, we came from Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf. And then they go, okay, so where'd Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf come from? And that takes you back to Robert Johnson. Where'd Robert Johnson come from? Sunhouse and Charlie Patton. Right. And that's all real. That's yeah. not made up. That's an absolutely straight, completely true lineage if where you start is the Rolling Stones. If where you start is B.B. King... And you say, where do you get your guitar style? B.B. Um, King had no interest in Mississippi guitar players. Right. Mississippi, for him, you know, he sings like a church person from Mississippi, not like a blues singer from Mississippi. His he was a church is, person from Mississippi. Right. But yeah. I mean, his singing style is completely out of the church. He's, mm-hmm. he's from the generation along with Ray Charles and Dinah Washington, who took church singing into blues. And his guitar playing, like you just said, his guitar playing is out of Los Angeles, which, I mean, the whole Chicago blues thing, um, if you ask people to name their favorite Chicago blues players, the fact is a lot of the players are, in fact, playing Los Angeles style, which was Mm -hmm. Memphis style. I mean, Memphis was imitating Los Angeles, Buddy Guy, B.B. King uh magic sam you know elmore james was playing mississippi style right but pretty much everybody else by the 50s was emulating t-bone walker and right. we creighton and lowell Fulson, a lot of guys out of texas and oklahoma and they came out of the new orleans thing of lonnie johnson mm-hmm. um I mean, it's not that one is more legitimate than the other. They were just different styles. Sure. So to what extent do you think that we, you know, Robert Johnson and, you know, the King of the Delta Blues, you know, album that came out from his his singles that he released. To what extent do you think that's kind of a representative snapshot uh, of Mississippi Delta Blues at that time period? Is or is it something that's totally unique, even at that time, totally unique to Robert Johnson? Both. I mean, he ha- he was uniquely talented. He was a spectacularly good writer, but also he's the first person we have on record who had that degree of versatility and had listened to all the records of everybody else. So if you want a snapshot of Mississippi blues in that moment, Robert Johnson is the perfect person because he can play like Sunhouse, he can play like Skip James, he can play like all the older guys. He also can play like all the music people are listening to on records from St. Louis and Chicago. And he's taking all of that and putting it together so that his records really are, if you had to pick one artist to represent the range of stuff that acoustic guitarists, of blues that acoustic guitarists were playing in the Delta, he's the man. Okay, well, yeah, that answers that. Um, and one of the things you mentioned in your book was that maybe the the thing that he was best known for by his contemporaries was his, his ability to hear a song once and just learn it immediately, right? So it was kind of like a human jukebox. 
Well, and in general, the versatility. I mean, right. the fact that, you know, he may have been the only person on the planet Earth in 1935 who mm-hmm. could play you a Sunhouse guitar part back to back with a Lonnie Johnson guitar part. Right. Those are very different styles and very different tastes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people later on went back and listened to those records in the 60s and learned to play both those styles. But I don't know if anyone else could play both those styles. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, Muddy Waters is a perfect example because Muddy mm-hmm. Waters got to Chicago and he tried to get a couple of band gigs and he couldn't play the Lonnie Johnson style. He couldn't play <laughs> lead guitar. He could play the Sun House style. Whereas mm-hmm. Robert Johnson in that same situation, he could have gotten the lead guitar gigs. Yeah. And yeah. if he had gotten those, we might never have known that he could play the Sun House style because, frankly, you got paid a lot more for playing the, <laughs> right. the lead guitar gigs. Right. So you mentioned Lonnie Johnson, and I want to just digress there a little bit because, uh, you know, he's one that's in some ways kind of been lost, relegated. I mean, but he was such a huge influence at that time. Same with Charlie Patton, really, you could say. I mean, do you want to say anything about about those two guys or kind of that environment? Um, They're kind of completely opposite. Charlie Patton was someone he could do one specific thing better than anyone alive. And there was a tiny corner of Mississippi where people loved that one specific thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other people emulated Charlie Patton and what we call Delta blues Mm -hmm. to a large extent is you could call Charlie Patton style. Mm -hmm. And that's really what most people mean when they say Delta blues. Um, But it was not a style that anybody cared about outside of Mississippi, Mm -hmm. Mississippi, Arkansas area. Most people hadn't heard it. I mean, one of the reasons Charlie Patton caught on with record collectors was that collectors like things that are rare and nobody else has. And there weren't any goddamn Charlie Patton records out there. Yeah. If you found one of those, you had something precious. Whereas Lonnie Johnson was a huge, huge national star. He was out of New Orleans. He could play at professional level, piano, violin, and guitar. He recorded with Duke Ellington. He recorded with Louis Armstrong, not because he was a blues singer and they hired him. You know, they were hired to back him, mm-hmm. but because if you wanted to bring in a ringer to play lead guitar, you brought in Lonnie Johnson. I mean, he was the father of jazz guitar and the father of blues lead. Right. Um, So it's just, you know, those are two completely, you know, one of them is this very specific, very deep, brilliant style, which is Charlie Patton. And the other is the father of basically everything we now call lead guitar. Modern guitar playing, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so Lonnie Johnson, in a way, was kind of like a, almost like a session ace in some ways before that was really a thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, he had his limitations, sure. but but he was more that than anyone else who we think of as the blues guitarist in the 1920s mm-hmm. and 30s. Right, right. And he was also a beautiful singer, but he was a singer who, look, when he got dis- rediscovered in the 1960s and they brought him on blues shows, he was singing Red Sails in the Sunset and I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Yeah. Right. And a lot of blues fans were really bothered by that. <laughs> um, because, but, you know, I mean, I have a friend who went and went to interview him and Lonnie Johnson said, oh, you another of these guys wants to go and put a wheelchair under my ass. Because that's really what was going on. I mean, people wanted to hear him sound like he had sounded in 1926. And he was still listening to the radio and learning the new Tony Bennett hits. It tells you something about how he thought of himself as a musician. Absolutely. 
So I want to ask, and if, and if you don't mind, I mean, I'm just, I would like to hear uh, about uh, your Grammy Award because, uh, you know, of course, uh, I, I Wikipedia stopped you before the interview and, uh, and saw that you had won a Grammy for the liner notes. And I would love to hear about that if you don't mind talking about it. That was just luck. Um, I mean, it wasn't just luck, but a lot of it was luck. Okay. Uh, this record company called Arhuli Records, mm-hmm. my favorite record company on earth, run by this one guy, Chris Drakwitz, who simply has spent his life following music that he is passionate about and doesn't give a damn about music he isn't passionate about and just released records that excited him and paid no attention to which records would sell. He did get publishing um, of the songs that he released that hadn't been published and the publishing did keep everything going um, when the records weren't selling. I'm not saying he was stupid or didn't care about the economics, but he only cared about music he cared about. And the moment came when his he wanted to do a 40th anniversary box set for Arhuli Records. And the thing about Arhuli was he had changed a lot over the years. He started out as a blues fan, uh, jazz and blue, you know, New Orleans trad jazz and blues. And then he got into Cajun music and Zydeco music and got from there into Tex-Mex music. And I was writing about all those different kinds of music. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a lot of people who could write knowledgeably about Robert Pete Williams and about Flaco Jimenez and about Beau Soleil. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the only one on the planet, but there weren't a lot of us. So he called me up and asked if I would do the liner notes. And I actually, the, the original plan was they wanted to do a CD of blues, a CD of Cajun uh, and Zydeco, a CD of Tex-Mex. And I said, no, let's do it as Chris's life story and do it chronologically and start with the first music he starts recording and just follow his passion because that's what the label has been. And so we sat down together and we put together a box set, five five CDs following his passion from when he first recorded Jesse Fuller and Mance Lipscomb up to what he was recording in the 19, I guess it's in the 2000s by then. Mm -hmm. And the fact is a lot of people in the record business love and admire Chris Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who made millions of dollars putting out pop records secretly wish that they had spent their entire careers following their passion. Um, And the Grammy really was a Grammy from people who appreciated Chris giving a Grammy to Chris's box set. I don't think most of them had read the liner notes for which I got the award. It was an award for Chris and God bless him for asking me. Well, uh, you may be selling yourself a little short there, but that but that is a no, really no, no. cool it's story. A good, it's a good project, yeah. and I'm proud of it. Yeah. But I'm just saying, the Grammy was not for the brilliance of my writing. The Grammy right. was for the fact that people were honoring Chris. Yeah. And he deserved it. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Do you have any new books on the way out that you'd like to talk about? Well, I'm actually doing... Well, the first thing I should say is I did follow up Escape in the Delta with another book that to me is part two of that one, which is called How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. Oh, okay. (laughs) Because what happened was I did Escaping the Delta and I was doing a lot of interviews at that point. And I would keep bringing up Leroy Carr, who Hmm. was sort of Robert Johnson's hero. Right. And I would say the sentence knowing about Robert Johnson and never having heard of Leroy Carr, which is true for a lot of people. Right. Uh, I would say is sort of like if you knew about the Sir Douglas Quintet and had never heard of the Beatles, which is to say, I may prefer the Sir Douglas Quintet to the Beatles, but I mean, come on, which of them was more popular and influential just ain't open to question. And I was saying that's true of Leroy Carr and Anyway, I kept saying that sentence, and after a while it hit me 
that the most popular artist in the United States in the period I was writing about was a guy named Paul Whiteman, who used to be called the King of Jazz. He was a white band leader and everybody in the he was the Beatles of the 1920s. He was the most popular band leader on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I had never heard a Paul Whiteman album. And I was writing all this stuff about the music of the 1920s. And every single person I was writing about knew who Paul Whiteman was and had heard Paul Whiteman's music, and I'd never heard it. So that sort of slapped me in the face. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, I, 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 need, I want to go back. I need to figure out what people were listening to. Mm -hmm. And though I titled the book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, because I want to sell books, what that book really is was an attempt to say, what were people listening to from about 1890 to 1970? Not what do I like, but right. what were people listening to? Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, there's that. The, the book I'm currently working on is actually a Jelly Roll Morton um, and Blues book, <laughs> because one of the other things that I began to realize is that all of our history of blues is the censored history of blues because you know people people in juke joints in mississippi did not clean up their language mm -hmm. they talked like people talk you know they talked like people talk in bars and juke joints and farms mm -hmm. and so sure. forth they used all those words mm -hmm. and when they sang they sang in their own voices and they used all those words but you couldn't print any of those words and you couldn't put them on records. Mm -hmm. So everybody had to invent these new lyrics that you could put <laughs> on records. And then everybody heard those records. And by 1930, everybody knew, oh, if you're a professional, you don't use words like that. Mm. And they simply ceased to exist in blues. And then along came rap in the 1980s and people started using all those words and everyone went, oh my God, this is horrible. The, the good old songs didn't use words like this. <laughs> but if you listen to Jelly Roll Morton's Library of Congress recordings, it is as violent and filthy and aggressive and all the things people criticize about gangster rap. <laughs> and that sort of woke me up to wait a minute there's nothing new about this. It's just, it's been censored and suppressed for 50 years. You know, people say Fuck. it's a word that everybody says, mm -hmm. maybe not your grandmother, but maybe your grandmother when she was 18. And that's one of the problems we have with music history mm. is that we think of the past as where our grandmother comes from. But when our grandmother was there at 18 years old, she was an 18 year old. She was right. not your grandmother. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for us to get our heads around the fact that our, you know, it's, I, I, you're going to have to bleep me again. One of my friends, she's long, long dead now, but she was already in her 70s in the 1960s. And she told a story about being in Berkeley, California, and this guy talking about the sexual revolution at a party and going on and on and on. And she said, I listened to him for 20 minutes. And I finally turned to him and said, young man, if you had invented f***ing, you would not be here today. That's kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, cussing has become more acceptable, but of course, it's not cross genre. And I would say even, you know, blues that's coming out now still tend to shy away from foul language. Absolutely. No, no, yeah. you, you, you do not cuss in blues. You do mm -hmm. not cuss in country music. Right. If you go backstage, the same people who you've just seen on stage are cussing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. You, do, you don't do it in the songs. And that didn't used to be true. There's a fellow named Vance Randolph who did a collection of folks, folklore in the Ozarks that is the only uncensored, large uncensored collection 
of what I'm going to call hillbilly folklore. It's a stupid word, but we all know what I mean. And it includes 11 pages of filthy square dance calls. <laughs> and people were using those calls in Mississippi. Yeah. And, and I mean, they are calls like gangster rap calls. I yeah. mean, they are calls that use all that language and talk about all that stuff. And they were square dance calls. Mm-hmm. And that was completely standard. Right. In, you know, 1910. Right. Because respectable people weren't there. It was Saturday night. Right. It's fascinating, though. Robert Johnson's reputation as a guitarist. Yes. And just in your opinion, overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Boy, it's a mix. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, he was an. He was an amazingly good guitarist. We have no idea what all he could do because all we have are 29 songs and they were specifically blues repertoire for that moment. I mean, he was playing all the current pop tunes. How did he play them? We don't know. So it's very hard to tell. What he did, he did as well as anybody has ever done that. What more he did, I don't know. You know, people say some stupid things about his playing. You know, people, I've heard somebody say, you know, he was the first, you know, a lot of guys just played with their thumb and index finger. He used all five fingers. No, he didn't. He used his thumb and index finger. I I don't think there's one lick in Robert Johnson you can't play with just your thumb and index finger. Mm -hmm. But that's about not understanding technically exactly what he did. It's not about how technically brilliant it was. It was technically brilliant. Certainly through the filter, like you said, of the, you know, the Rolling Stones or Eric Clapton, uh, their, a lot of their admiration for him was around the guitar playing. Oh, they say stupid. Look, that's a different world. They came from a world where one guy plays rhythm guitar and the other guy plays lead. And they heard Robert Johnson not, and they had never heard Sutton House and all those other people before Mm -hmm. that. And so they went, oh, my God, it sounds like two guys playing together. No, it didn't. It sounded sounded like a good fingerstyle guitarist. They They were just not familiar with that style. The mythology of the Delta, the Mississippi Delta being the sort of the birthplace of the blues. It's become kind of this self-fulfilling thing where now it's almost like the the most respected new blues artists are from the Delta because they, they quote-unquote, have that heritage. Is that your same perception? Um, look, it, this is – all these sorts of things are complicated. <laughs> Lawrence Gushy, when he was asked, is New Orleans really the birthplace of jazz? Mm-hmm. He said, well, you know, the one thing we can say for sure is that New Orleans is the birthplace of New Orleans jazz. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, Mississippi Delta blues definitely comes from the Mississippi Delta. Sure. And if that's what you want to hear, that's where it's from. Mm -hmm. Um, There were lots of other blues styles that didn't come from the Mississippi Delta. Right. And they sound in some ways similar and in some ways very different. And the Mississippi Delta style was very heavily influenced by other styles. But but it's always give and take. If you talk to the people from New Orleans about the earliest blues, if you see, you know, the old interviews, people who were around in the 1890s, And they will say, well, you know, the blues came out of the songs that people were singing on the levees, that workers were singing, that workers were singing in the fields, that they were singing on the riverboats. They were singing on the working on the railroads. Now, they don't say that was blues. They say blues came out of that. If you want to call that sound already blues, there were people doing it in Mississippi, probably who knows how far back. Right. On the other hand, 
you then get a bunch of piano players coming off the Gulf Coast, working up and down through Mississippi, people like Little Brother Montgomery and before him, Jelly Roll Morton and before him, people who didn't get recorded, like a guy named Papa Lord God, mm-hmm. one of my favorite names ever, um, who were the huge stars working in the levee camps and the lumber camps in Mississippi. And they are the people who people like Charlie Patton were listening to. Right. And so there's a give and take there. The other thing, and this is sort of the one big thing I'd say about the Mississippi blues that most people don't understand, is that what made the Mississippi Delta special was that it not that it was this abandoned place out in the middle of nowhere, unconnected with the rest of the world. Mm. What made the Mississippi Delta special was that it had not existed until the beginning of the 20th century. It was swampland. There were no old plantations there. There were very few people there. And it got drained and turned into profitable farmland right around the beginning of the 20th century. And all these young black, particularly men, but also women, were brought in to build those levees and clear that lumber and work those farms. And so there were no old people. Hmm. And so whereas in Carolina or in the hill country of Mississippi or a lot of other places, the bands were still playing a lot of old ragtime and square danced music because there were a lot of old people who wanted that. In the Delta, there weren't any old people. And the young people were into blues because that was the new hot sound. Hmm. So you have a world where you can go out and just play blues and you have blues fiddler, you have blues guitarists playing dances hmm. where if you'd been up in the hill country, they would have wanted a fiddler who could play the old ragtime and hoedowns. Hmm. But in the Delta, you could have Charlie Patton playing nothing but blues all night because wow. it was new and young, not because it was old. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. That's, that's really cool. I had never thought of it that way. The old uh, game of, you know, you're trapped on a desert island, all you've got is a record player and five records. What five records do you take? See, that one's always hard for me because <laughs> I figured it would be. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I, because you see, it, when you ask a lot of people that question, mm-hmm. they start thinking of their favorite records. Mm-hmm. Um, I start thinking about what records could I stand to hear over and over and over. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, so like I never listened to John Coltrane's A Love Supreme because I very rarely want to sit still for 20 minutes and go <laughs> that deep into something that complicated. I, I mean, I don't know what the list, you know, I'd have to think about it, but right. that's the way I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. The way I'm thinking is what is so complicated that I could st- listen to it over and over and over and keep hearing new stuff. Um, would there be any blues on that list? Hell, far as I'm concerned, the love Supreme is blues. Okay. That's an interesting statement. I mean, I did. Wow. You know, I, I hate to just leave that hanging. Tell, tell me why you say that. Because it's coming out of the, it, it's the same tradition. I mean, it's that deep African-American tradition. It's like you were saying at the beginning, I mean, drawing genre lines mm-hmm. is a way of not listening. I right. mean, that's all the genre lines are about. All genre mm-hmm. lines are about is you're not hearing mm-hmm. all the ways things connect because instead you're filing them in categories. Right. And I mean, nobody really listens that way. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ask the average person, what kind of music they like, they may have an answer. But if you check their iPod, you'll find a lot else on there. You talked about in the book a little bit about how you define blues. And it's like there's... I don't. Right, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> so as a player, 
when somebody says, let's play blues, I'm thinking, okay, is it 12 bar or eight bar? You know what I mean? It's like, that's blues. Right. But as sure, a, which as, it is. Right. No, I mean, that's, but, that's legitimate. I mean, if I'm playing in a band and somebody plays, okay, says, okay, let's play a blues in a, I know right. what they mean. Yeah. I say, what do you mean by a blues? I know what they mean. Yeah. So it's like, there's this musical shorthand that is blues, you know, and it's like minor pentatonic scale, whatever. But then, like, what you're saying about Allah Supreme is there's also this cultural tradition that is blues, that this sort of grow, that, that Allah Supreme and that kind of thing has kind of grown out of, even if it's not a 12 bar. Sure, you, and there's, an, there's an emotion that's blues. I mean, people will say, you know, Edith Piaf, it's sort of like French blues. We all know what that means. We understand yeah. that sentence. Mm-hmm. Honestly, when people say to me, how do you define blues? My usual answer is, you tell me how you define it, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to use your definition for the for as long as we're talking. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not, it's not that I hate definitions. It's that, you know, let's talk about the music. You tell right. me how you define blues, I'll use your definition, and let's talk about the music. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to end this interview. I mean, that's a good thought to leave it on. So, okay, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. I have, I, I feel like I could talk to you for like three hours. Uh, I, I really enjoy hearing about anything about music history, and you obviously just have such a wealth in your brain. But I appreciate it. I want to encourage my listeners check out uh, "Escaping the Delta." Check out the sequel, which the Beatles ruined music. Beatles no, no, room. no. How the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. They uh, didn't ruin it. Okay. How <laughs> uh, the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. Um, Elijah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Music of the River City. I really want to thank Elijah Wald for being on the show. I enjoyed talking with him, and I learned so much. If you like music history, I really encourage you to check out his book, Escaping the Delta. The sequel, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, or any of his many other great titles. If you have questions, comments, or know someone who would like to be featured on the podcast, please contact me at musicoftherivercity at yahoo.com. Follow Music of the River City on Facebook to get updates when new episodes come out. And it really helps the show if you subscribe to Music of the River City on Amazon Music, Audible, Apple, Spotify, or CastBox. Thanks again for listening to Music of the River City.